You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Growing up in Ohio, today's guest was an avid cinephile, staring at the screen and hoping that he could one day be dancing as brilliantly as Fred did with Ginger. Little would he know that one day he would actually be dancing for Ginger at some point. <laughs> His career began at the infamous Kenley Players, which we love to talk about, where he worked alongside legends like Ann Miller, Mickey Rooney, Sid Charisse, and Tommy Toon. Then it was with the last of the great Golden Age musicals, 42nd Street, that our great guest became known within the New York theater community. As the keeper of that flame, he has kept the legacy of that show alive for the past 30-some years. Yeah. And if that wasn't enough, there were also countless productions at Encores as well. And we've got White Christmas, State Fair, Dames at Sea, Endless Teaching Credits, God Bless the Teacher, and the list goes on and on to tell us what it was like to work with people like Gower Champion, David Marrick, Ginger Rogers, John Kenley, and so many others. Here is the tapping titan of Broadway, Randy Skinner. Hello, Randy. Hello, guys. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So I'm going to ask you, what was the first movie musical you saw that had an impact on you? Probably the Fred and Ginger RKO musicals. They're RKO That's what time. I have okay. uh, memories of, the black and white art deco films, because oh, yeah. they made uh, nine together. They went on and made a tenth film for M- MGM, mm-hmm. but it was those nine black and white movies that I kind of became enthralled mm. with the with the movie musicals. Um, what was it about Fred and Ginger's style that attracted you so much to them? Well, now I can verbalize it. Back then, I sure. certainly couldn't have said anything. But uh, I love the fact that they were always playing to each other, or Fred had what I call the three-quarter gaze down, <laughs> whereas oh, yeah. people like Gene Kelly, Eleanor Powell, who were equally as wonderful and brilliant, right. they played the camera with all of those big faces and those big grins, which, of course, Gene and Eleanor both had. But if you watch and you study Fred and Ginger, it was always very internal as if you're watching their world. Mm. I found that obviously powerful as a kid, and I find it incredibly powerful today. It's like you're watching their secret. Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, whereas people who play directly to you, it's equally fun and interesting. Sure. But my my kind of affinity went towards the other. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, we know names like Gene Kelly. We know names like Fred Astaire. But who from that great golden age of MGM musicals uh, should be remembered more than we do today? 
Well, I know this is really uh, an interesting phenomenon because when you talk to younger people and you mention these icons, often you do get blank looks Mm -hmm. and you didn't think there'd ever be a day when you would get that. Uh, I suppose, well, it's a long list, but uh, certainly people like Vera Ellen, they might be known or you might say now that lady who dances in the movie White Christmas because the movie's so well known and then they associate it. But when you just talk about the names, people like Vera Ellen, Eleanor Powell, even to a certain degree, Anne Miller with the younger people. They Mm -hmm. don't quite know all of those people um, unless you really are so into the movies and you've watched them. And there are are people like that. And I can tell instantly when they come in either to audition or to take class, you can tell immediately who is a student of the films. Oh, really? Yeah. And you can almost tell who they might emulate based on their physicality or how they look. And I I know instantly. Is Is it a style that they bring to the dance? It's an internal feeling. Mm. Yeah, and a style, certainly, yeah. if, particularly if they are watching a role model that mm. they really decide they're going to devote time to, like I did with Fred right, and Ginger. Right. I devoted so much time just watching them and studying them. And you will find people who have a role model that they really dissect. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, let's say someone has never seen a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. Uh, what movie would you recommend to them and go, this is the epitome of what they do? Well, there's two. Um, most people would consider Top Hat and Swing Time. Mm-hmm. They're two uh, best movie musicals of, of that period. I tend to like follow the fleet yeah. because I love the plot. And of course, I love the Irving Berlin score. Now, yes. Irving Berlin also wrote Top Hat. Right. Swing Time was Jerome Kern. Mm. So you have two masters of songs and, right. and composers and lyricists, and uh, and then you create that magic. But, uh, but those are the two. I okay. would say watch mm-hmm. Top Hat or Swing Time, and you're going to see the ultimate in sophistication. The plots are both pretty good in those movies Mm -hmm. and it really does represent what the two of them did yeah amazing and then one last question about movie musicals for now and then we'll come back to it um you have this wonderful group of people that created magic on screen you could take any one of them and choreograph a piece for them who would you choose oh wow it'd be so daunting but uh (laughs) probably fred yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would just, uh, wouldn't that be exciting to be in a room and have him open and say, bring me something? Right. That's basically yeah. what he and Hermes Pan did. Yeah. His oh. longtime associate, right. they would get in a room and they would uh, simply go to work and they would have a dance arranger there, of course, and then they would trade steps and they would come up with ideas. That's really what you do when you have an associate that you're really close to. It's... Um, it's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. So they and they were uh, they looked alike, they were built exactly alike, and that was very smart of him right. because then you were seeing exactly what might transfer to your own body right. if your assistant is built like you. Yeah. And uh, so that happened a lot. And Ginger didn't enter the picture till usually way late into the rehearsal process because she was off doing other movies. Because mm-hmm. she was, well, I always say she's one of the few, the handful of people that were. Uh, able to do comedy, drama, and musicals. I one time told Christine Ebersaw, I went backstage to see her after Grey Gardens because she had done 42nd Street, and I said, you know, you're the Ginger Rogers of the Broadway world because Christine is one theater actress who has gone from comedies to dramas to musicals. One of the few. And no one thinks about it. You accept her in every single art form that she's in. You're exactly right. That's right. right. And that's uh, because of my movie background, I'm always aware of that. Uh, And, uh, And Judy Garland was another one. Yeah. who was a performer who did musicals, comedies, and dramatic Drama. works. But most people were kind of pigeonholed. Right, you know? yeah. Right. Um, when you were growing up in Ohio, what came first, the dance classes, then the love of movies, or was it the love of movie musicals that inspired you to take dance classes? 
dance class first because my parents put me in class at age four. What? Now, that's unusual in Ohio, uh, a child of the 50s, a boy, particularly a boy of the 50s. But I think the story goes, from what I can tell, is that uh, my my family was really close to another neighborhood family, and she was go- the, the girl was going to class, and so I went along, and then, like out of chorus line, I stayed and she quit. <laughs> I can do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I think that's how it all started. It's just my, my mom and then this uh, young Young girl's mom yeah. kind of put their heads together, and we all went to dance class. And was it tap at first? Tap at first. Okay. Tap at first, and then we added jazz and ballet yeah. and all the other things you get in a dance school when of you're growing course. up. The other thing about my parents was they were they were quite astute about knowing when to sit down and talk to the teacher and then move me to another studio. That rarely happens. But yeah. they would say, you've outgrown this studio, I've done what I can, and then let's move you on to maybe another place that can take you further. It was yeah, quite You're remarkable that that all happened. Yeah. Very proactive. Young Not career. pushy at all. You know, it's like they gave my brother and I both any opportunities we wanted, and they were hoping something would grab Mm -hmm. hold so that you could uh, become maybe successful at it. Then uh, do you remember the first theatrical production you saw that had a major effect on you? Because you, you were able to see touring shows as they came through Yeah, Ohio. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents took, I suppose probably, I can't remember the show exactly, but probably the Kenley Players. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's yeah. let's talk about John we Kenley. Yeah. John Kenley. Uh, um, I love the Kenley Players. Yeah, well, you've heard a lot about him, I'm sure, through we've, other yes. well, everyone people. Everyone we've talked to, we've tried to talk to, uh, yeah, I mean, we have. Yeah. We've, we've yeah. tried to patch together a, a story of him sure. you know, through, to our listeners, because he was so legendary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just for the the personal life. And we know the obvious, yeah, yeah, stuff, sure. the obvious yeah. stuff that yeah. everyone talks about. The shame is, it is nobody. Is, he never wrote a book. Uh, yes. uh, as far yeah. as I know, he might have written one, but never got it published. No, yeah. Who knows? And the whole documentary. And Jeff Calhoun was trying to work on a yes, documentary. Yes, I remember Jeff was doing that, and and nobody really has uh, written anything about him. Much, yeah. So it's no. uh, so we, 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 Yeah, we, we try to celebrate him as much his, as possible. Oh yeah, yeah. So what was it like seeing his shows come through Ohio? And then we'll ask you what it was like working for him at one point. Well, they were just so big. Because he played the big barns in the cities, he played Warren Dayton in Columbus, and my was I was in Columbus, and I think that auditorium, which is no longer there, was a four thousand seat house. Ooh, wow. So you, it might have been the biggest one of the circuit, mm. um, but that's he got these enormous stars to come and do both the plays and the musicals. So yeah. they certainly filled it yeah. with not only audience members, but the uh, the performances could certainly play that because they were so big as far mm-hmm. as names. Mm-hmm. So it, that that's the first memory is just going and seeing these big musicals and they were they were sizable yeah was it surreal seeing people that you admired on screen now in front of you three-dimensional yeah, that's always kind of a kick if you yeah. really do love the business and you you do you do think about that. Mm-hmm. And then when working with them, of course, that's the next layer. Oh, that yeah. happens, you know, when yeah. you're really actually in the room dancing. Um, when did you make your? What was your first audition for the Kenley Players? Uh, it was when I was a probably in elementary school for the King and I. A mm-hmm. big casting notice went out in Columbus because they were going to try to pick up kids yeah. uh, to do each city, so they wouldn't have to tour kids around. And, you know, it was, I mean, come on, me going yeah. into the King and I, but my mom took me down, and there's a big photograph of all these kids on the front steps of Vets Memorial, which was the theater, yeah. and uh, all of us young hopefuls. And, of course, I did not get chosen, right. but uh, but that was my first audition, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. Then in college, I went up to Warren to dance for John. When I was in college, I drove up, and uh, that was really the first actual audition as an adult. Yes. And then he hired me in 1973 to do the pajama game, Juliet Prowse oh as Babe. 
Oh wow! Now that's another name that nobody knows. Yeah. Yes, and we do. We have talked about her a couple yeah. of times. Nobody right. knows Juliet's name, and, and yet, she was brilliant dancer. So many dancers that we've that's talked right. to of a certain generation were like, "Oh yeah, when I danced with her, I was like the, yeah. the best." And people just totally get blank looks about Juliet. Yeah. And there's not a lot of film on Juliet Unf- as far as movies. You probably would Google her and see ghost tapes of different things. But yeah, she was uh, a stage star and also a Vegas star. She mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. I never saw it, but people claim that she had the best Vegas show. Mm-hmm. Uh, of almost anybody around at that time. Yes, there's a... Who, Leroy? Yeah, well, Leroy. Probably. Would I would think her. Leroy would know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah Leroy danced with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for our listeners, because um, you're right, there's not a lot of footage out there for it, but I think there's a Tony Awards broadcast where she dances to the Overture of Gypsy. Oh, maybe. I'll post um, that. So we'll post cool. that for our listeners to see Juliet's work because it's right. incredible. Um, what did you learn working from her? The warm-up that I give in class. Oh, <laughs> so tell us about among this. One, uh, among many things. But, uh, yeah, she uh, she invited people to uh, do a warm-up with her every night that she put herself through. So I would go on stage, and we would just go through. And it, it was uh, – I'm not even sure how old Julia was in that show, but uh, <laughs> it's a very gentle warm-up that takes you from the head down to your feet. And, and by 25 minutes, you feel like you can go on stage and do anything. So really? I use a lot of that in my classes, and I always announce that, like, I'll say, uh, periodically I'll say, you know, a lot of these things are from Miss Juliet Prowse. Oh. And, of course, I get the blank looks, yep. and then I explain. Good. And then I Good. do a lot of things from the American Dance Machine, which mm. we can talk about. Yeah, which we'll yeah. talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. that's kind of uh, when I do a jazz class, the first 25 minutes are a warm-up, and then we proceed to across-the-floor exercises, mm. and then we do a combination. Uh, what college did you go to? Ohio State University. Ohio State and University. You, you studied speech communications. Yes, yes. I have a, a teaching degree, actually. Oh. But the emphasis was in communication. So did you dance in college? Yes. Well? Oh, yeah, sure. I took a lot of classes and did shows. You must have been busy. Started choreographing in college. Oh, did you oh, really? from musicals? Really? That's where it really started. First yeah. show that you choreographed? Yeah, like uh, I did Dames at Sea, funny yeah. enough, hey. in college, and played Dick and also choreographed. And then I also did Charlie <laughs> Brown, crazy. your good man Charlie Brown, yeah. played Linus and uh-huh. choreographed. Yes, good. So that really <laughs> nice, was, nice. yeah, that really was the uh, beginnings of, of, of thinking about choreography was in at, at OSU. When you graduated school, uh, did you immediately move to New York City, or did you continue doing summer stock in Ohio? Well, I actually uh, did some substitute teaching because I graduated in the winter. I went oh. one extra quarter, oh. and uh, because I was taking so many things that I just decided to <laughs> majoring go. in so many schools, yeah, majoring right? so many yes. uh, <laughs> subjects. So I stayed through the winter, and uh, and then uh, did some substitute teaching. Learned really quick in the elementary school system because mm. at that point in time they were also looking for males to go into the elementary schools. Mm. They were trying to get figureheads and and get more of that uh, that influence. But it was uh, it was tough being a sub, you know, yeah, yeah. not an easy thing to do. So I did that until the spring, and then I moved here and uh, just drove up with a a group of people and and arrived in New York. So Mm. when you got to New York, were you got the trade papers and you were just going on lots of auditions? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, You went to everything, and it was a community, and and you learned from everything. And there were a lot of auditions to go to. That's changed, of course. And and, uh, there was turnover in shows, and and everything was uh, very different back then because of the nature of the business. What was your much harder today. Oh, oh yes, much, much that's harder. a theme we hear a lot. Oh of. yeah, what was sure. your go-to audition song? You remember what you would sing? Uh, I did "Bye Bye Blackbird," oh. kind of in a, a up-tempo swing. Yeah. I always tried to pick something that was maybe a little off-center.
center mm-hmm. as opposed to doing something traditional. And yeah. that, that worked for me. Uh, and uh, in fact, Leroy Reams once said, I, when we were doing the original 42nd Street together, he, he just said, I've sung the two so- same two songs for years. And he said, that's the best advice is just get something under your belt that works, yeah. that under any circumstances you can sing, right. whether you're nervous or not feeling well. I'll never yeah. forget that. It was, I was in Leroy. He might not remember, but it was in oh, Leroy's yeah. dressing room. Oh. And we were just talking about the process. Yeah. And he said, I sing the same songs. Yeah. You know? yep. And it's yep. very That's good me. advice. It is. Now, now, today you have to have probably more variety because right. of the rock shows and yeah. that influence and what they're asking yes. you to do. But when you just needed kind of a traditional standard up tempo and a ballad, right. that was very wise hmm. to, to get something in your vocal memory, right. yeah. muscle memory, so that under any circumstance you could you could perform Knock it. Knock it out, yeah. yeah. Um, the world of auditioning has changed so much since when you first came to the city to when you're auditioning people now. Do you prefer the, uh, the older way of doing it or do you prefer this new way of doing well, now, what do you casting? mean by the new way? Just because of... Uh, well, the fact that, for example, that, you know, you're not auditioning on a Broadway stage. You're auditioning oh, okay. in a smaller rehearsal space. Right. Um, the fact that there is a, a phone book of songs that a person has to know as opposed to just having two that they feel really comfortable with. Yeah, the process, um, there's more people now. I mean, there's a lot more people because of uh, all the musical theater programs that are going on. People Mm -hmm. are majoring in it now and getting degrees, of course. So it takes more time, and sometimes the the process is sped up a lot more. Mm. And so I don't know if everybody always gets their due. Mm. I I try to, and and the people with me, we, we try to always remember that. And so when people come in for our shows, we do it in groups of three, four at the most, and often that doesn't happen. There might be six or eight in a group, and it's hard to look at that many people, but if you have hundreds of kids waiting, it's uh, it's problematic. So we just take the time we need, and we just try to to do it civilly so that everybody does feel that they're getting a fair chance mm-hmm. at showing. And, and of course, it depends on the show. If you have a level of technique that is that separates people fairly quickly, right. then it doesn't take as long because you can give four yeah. eights of, right. a, of, a, of a dance combination. Right. And within, the, the and within those like... four eights, you can see very quickly. And, and what you try to do is you try to clear the room of anybody you know can't possibly do the show because of lacking the, the skill level. Right. And then you, if you're smart, you hang on to the maybes. Yeah. And you don't dismiss them so quickly. And then, of course, you know immediately who are, who are the brilliant people right. because you see it. And then you proceed on from there. Mm. So you know, there's a system to it. Wow. Yeah. And it can actually be pretty organized if you are all on the same page. Great. Yeah. When, when you were performing, what was that conversation with yourself like? What did you realize that you were very strong at? And what did you realize that maybe you would never accomplish successfully? Well, an interesting story. Um, I auditioned once for uh, Mr. Fossey. Okay. Now this was when he, you know, when you think of Bob Fosse and, and his beginnings, he was like MGM and the boy next door yeah. when he still had his hair and things right, like that. Right, and when you right. look at his films that he was in, he was like Gower Champion. They yeah. were all just uh, doing those kind of uh, dances and, and those kind of shows. Then he went through a whole change. Uh, from what I can tell and what I've read about Bob is that, and certainly there's experts out there, he, his art reflected his life. Yes. Whereas somebody like Gower, Champion, who was my mentor, Mm -hmm. no matter what was going on in his life, he still put up the Hello Dollies and the shows that were pretty pictures and had a gentleness to them Mm -hmm. and a tuneful score, all of that. He didn't, his art did not really reflect 
what his personal life was, yeah. whereas Bob's kind of uh, influenced him yeah. from what I keep reading and know from friends who worked with him. So when I auditioned for him, and I don't even know what it was for, but he, I remember he came up and shook my hand, and the look in his face was, and I heard this also from his stage manager or his right-hand man because we did a workshop together. He, it was like, geez, if you had just been around 20 years ago <laughs> was, when I was yeah. doing that thing that you do, <laughs> yeah. I could see it in his eyes because he knew I was a good dancer. Right. Yeah. Appreciation, but yeah, but not going to work out yeah. because you, you, you don't look like you fit into Chicago or to yeah. whatever it is I'm doing. Uh, and, and, and so I knew. I knew right away. And, yeah. and now I come up against that where I might see somebody who really has the technique or is a good dancer, but they just don't fit the style like or what's going on with the show. Mm. So that was a, a good lesson. And, it, you know, it kind of all works out because I met the man that I was obviously meant to be with yeah. who fought, who really did mentor me and and, uh, and was a big influence. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So now what was your, what was that original question? No, we were, got off on a tangent. You, you, you transitioned us very well yeah. to, uh, to Gower. How did you meet the man himself? Well, there's another interesting story you know, because um, back in, uh, I'm trying to think, it would have been around 19... Uh, 79 or so, around 1979, because 42nd Street was 1980. there was this show brewing out there called Sugar Babies with Ann Miller and Mickey (laughs) Rooney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big big hit. And uh, I had worked with Ann Miller at the Kenley Players. Oh, had you? And we had become very close. What show? Uh, Anything Goes. Oh. And that was Ann Miller and Bobby Van and a wonderful character (laughs) actor named Coley Worth. And who played Moon and Moonface? And is that what the name of the character? Yeah, Moonface. Yeah, Moonface. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so that actually, there was talk about moving that into New York, and then it never never happened, like so many things. Yeah. But I became very close to Ann. We did the Kenley Circuit, and it was a huge hit because at the time Ann Miller was still very very well known, yeah. and Bobby Van was well known. Yeah. So you had two stars, and it was a real crackerjack production. <laughs> and uh, so I, anyway, I met Ann and became close to her. So when when this Sugar Baby show was brewing, she had called me and said, you know, I'm doing this new show and uh, I would like you to be one of my four guys and so we were talking about it and uh, I was going to have to audition of course but she said I've got you on the list and I would like you to do that and they were going to go on the road for six months Mm. and then come into New York Uh, at the same time I had been cast in the very first musical version about Jolson Al Jolson Mm. now that's another name people don't know yeah Yeah. you know when you bring up Al Jolson people do not know the history of that man right and his talent but this was the first incarnation because subsequently there were other attempts at yeah. musicalizing Al Jolson's life. This starred Larry Kurt, the original yeah. star from West Side Story. It was being tried out at a theater called North Stage on Long Island, which I think was a former movie house. It might have been a vaudeville theater, then turned into a movie house, mm. and then back to a theater, like, like typical. Yeah. So that meant I could live at home and just commute to Long Island and, and do this new incarnation of Jolson, and we were going to move into Broadway, yeah. just like Sugar Baby. So I told Anne that I was going to stick with the Jolson project, and so, you know, long story short, Jolson closed on Long Island and never came in. And then Sugar Babies came into the Mark Hellinger and ran whatever, how many years? Three, four yeah. years or something. Yeah. And uh, so I would go by that theater and see Anne and the four boys and all those pictures outside and think, oh, my gosh, what a decision. <laughs> but, and I tell this story when I teach in colleges, uh, the connection to Gower came from the pianist and assistant conductor of the Jolson Project. So when Gower called me, he called me on the phone one night, a uh, very snowy February 
day in, in 1980, I guess it would have been, yeah. And he said, I've heard about you, and uh, I'm looking for somebody to work on the show. He had a female assistant already, Karen Baker, a wonderful, wonderful lady and, and dancer. And he evidently thought he needed a guy also on the team. And so I said, well, how did you get my name? And he said, from Don Johnston, who ended up to be the dance arranger on 42nd Street. Oh, so again, how friends, do you, you, connections. You, you, yeah, you can't plan, yeah. you know, out of something that I thought might have been a bad decision ended up right. to be the, the, the opportunity that actually changed my entire career Your in whole life, life. Yeah. because of connecting the dots. If I had done Sugar Babies and had gotten cast in that, I would never have Who met knows? Don, yeah. and then I would have never been led to Gower. Yeah. I mean, directly that way. Maybe yeah. it would have happened regardless. But uh, Oh, you had asked me about the skill set, too, that I had come oh, yeah. in. That was the initial question about... Yeah. Uh, and obviously, I hit the city uh, not only being a well-rounded dancer, but having the expertise of tap. Yeah. And, Good timing, uh, yeah. And, and uh, that, that, that's not a bad idea is if you do become known. You didn't have to fight to let people know you do other things yeah. and that you're well-rounded. But, uh, yeah. but that was the initial entry when I would go into an audition or when I would meet people. They could see that I had tapped my entire life and, and had a, a skill set that might not have been as prevalent with other people. You know, tap went through a whole period where it wasn't around much. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it, it kind of came back in 1971 when I was in college with No No Nanette. Yeah. Yes. Uh, until then, it kind of disappeared. And then it disappeared after that again. And it really was 1980 and 42nd Street that brought it back in, mm-hmm. a, in a big way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, tapping goes through waves, yeah. you know, where there might be a lot of shows that need it. And then there's periods where there's no tap. Right. You know. What period are we in now, currently in 2018? Well, there's a lot of it that goes around, you know. Again, it's just uh, depending on what the show needs. Mm-hmm. You know, audiences love tap. Yeah. I take it for granted and uh, but they do they just they do love it my theory is that uh, it's um, the only art form besides flamenco dance form that's auditory as well as visual that's right mm. so you're not only seeing something but you're hearing that and I think everybody the rhythm, the yeah. rhythm and, yeah. and people inherently relate to rhythm and drumming I think that's why the in the big band era the drummers became stars oh yeah. very true yeah. Yeah. yeah very true yeah they were they were big names in that heyday because yeah. drums are uh, it gets you moving yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean it's tribal it's exactly yeah. how it all started yeah. was through drumming, you know, uh-huh. in ancient times. Yeah. You know, that's what yeah, people yeah. danced to was rhythm and drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, flamenco. Yeah. I never thought of flamenco. As yeah. Well Auditory also. Yeah. 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 Flamenco is very close to tap. Or I yeah. should say tap close to flamingo. I don't right. know which was yeah. discovered first or, but uh, yeah. yeah, they're very similar. And usually uh, if somebody's a good tapper, they can go into flamingo class and <laughs> learn it. <laughs> right. And I would think it'd be the opposite too, that a flamingo dancer could come in and learn some tap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so you get this phone call from Gower Champion. Mm-hmm. You were 26 years old when this was happening? Uh, yeah, about then. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. That's a pretty heady time. Yeah. Um, since, particularly since I was thinking about just being one of the kids because we had all heard about this show. Right. And I thought, oh, I have a good crack at this. You know, right. I know the movie. <laughs> it might be a chance. It might be yeah. a chance here. It seems like, uh, you know, what they're looking for and what the what everybody's talking about. Did you think the call was going to be, would you like to be in it? As a- no, I didn't know what it was. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been that presumptuous, but uh, it just really took me out of the clear blue. And mm-hmm. he basically said, I've heard about you and uh, and I'm looking for somebody to be on the team and, and uh, can you come in and spend the day with me? So I went in, uh, I said, Several days later, and and Karen Baker was there, and Don Johnston at the piano, and Gower, and I went in and spent the day with them, and just we got on our feet and moved around and danced and talked about things, and yeah. then that night he called and hired me. Oh, could wow. you feel you guys hit it off? Oh, yeah, away? yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, definitely. I didn't know a lot about Gower and Marge. Of course, I knew who they were. His, <laughs> his uh, former wife, Marge Champion, yeah. his first wife. And 
so I knew them from the movies, of course. But uh, again, my role models were Fred and, uh, and Ginger. Yeah. But uh, but after the fact, after Gower died, and then I started meeting people that knew Gower, he, they said, "Oh, there was a reason for this because you're built like him. You you kind of uh, represent what he's about." Mm. And then when I went back and started watching the films, I, I said, "Oh, yes, I can see this yeah. definitely. Yeah. This makes total sense to me. Why he picked up on me." And mm. wild that you you got to know him that last year of his life, and yet. You, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of stories about him from earlier sure. in his career, you know, and he could, you know, he could be, he was, a, he could, there was some conflict sometimes mm-hmm. and he could, you know, but what was, what was your feeling about him and how did, if, if you could share, if our listeners don't know anything about Garber Champion, right. you know, what sure. was his personality like? What was it like to work in the re- rehearsal room with him? Well, it was great because he always said that was the favorite part of his experience with the show was the pre-production. Oh. And then we did it for quite a long time and then also went down to the Kennedy Center. And, and you could tell he, he really enjoyed it. It also, uh, I we all wrestle with this. Anybody who uh, works behind the scenes, you have a vision and then you get in the room and you create things and then you hope to find people who can do it, but that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. So, so, particularly if it involves not only technique but a style, a right. feeling of something, there are plenty of people who technically can do things, but then can they translate the style on top of that? And 42nd Street was a period piece, and of course Gower was a master from the movies, so he right. danced a certain way. Uh, at that point, because of his illness, he was not on his feet so much dancing full out. And we didn't know that he was ill until after the fact. Okay. We got uh, ideas, certainly, as we got down to the Kennedy Center, and he would miss rehearsals. We mm-hmm. all knew there was something going on, but mm-hmm. no, nothing to the degree that it, the light bulb would go off yeah. until way after. And uh, But he was not dancing full out, mm-hmm. and because when he did attempt to do it, you could see he would get tired mm-hmm. because of what he was going through. So so we were really on our feet a lot, Karen and I, and, and really doing... Uh, just getting up and doing steps and dancing full out because and that's, we were both that's the that pre-production point. work that you were talking about. Yes. Is that we're, when, and for those who don't know, that's literally when the choreographer and their assistant and the dance ranger that really yes. is making the music fit At the, the piano. dance that yep. goes hand in hand, they're literally coming up with the world that they're going to create. That's right. They are literally creating it without any other dancers. This happens sometimes months in advance. Can be, um, depending, yeah. yeah depending and and especially a show like this that had oh, huge. Uh, so much dance. Yeah, in 75% numbers. So you guys and, were literally you know, creating... That vocabulary. Yes, yes, and that's why uh, assistants and associates are so important because you uh, you're really putting the show on the people in the room around you, and then you uh, hopefully uh, it like I said it translates and. uh, so it was a perfect teaming, and, and mm. it was a great fun. I had a conflict, of course, being at that age, that I still wanted to be one of the gang. A and, dancer, uh, like in the yeah, team. Yeah, 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 and I remember that, uh, just thinking, oh, my gosh, it would be so much fun just to be up there. Yeah. And I, we actually talked about it at one point. I said, you know, is there a way I could dance in the show? And, again, not knowing what he was going through, he had said, no, I really need you on this side of the footlights. And it makes total sense. He knew. He knew. Yeah, he knew. He knew. And... Uh, but yeah, I think about those days, particularly out of town, when you're going through tryouts and previews, and everybody else is going out <laughs> after the performances, and yeah. either gossiping or, or talking right. about how they'd fix the show. And when you're 26, yeah, come on, that's you know, like, those are your people. Yeah, yeah. they're my colleagues. Yeah. And so I, I was kind of separated from that mm-hmm. at, a, at a young age mm-hmm. and, and didn't really get to participate in that. So it was, it was, it was a bit of a conflict for me, yeah. although uh, when you look back, you go, listen, things happen the way they're supposed to, and it 
it does change, and then you go with the flow. And that's another life lesson I try mm-hmm. to tell people mm-hmm. is just be open. Right. And there might be things you question at the time, but who knows how it's supposed to play out and what's going to happen from it. Yeah. And that's certainly a life lesson I went through. Mm. When, oh, sorry, oh, no. oh, I was going to say, what's it like being in a room with Goward Champion as, as a leader of the ship, captain of the ship? Oh, it was exciting, you know, and, and also so smart. And you just uh, learn so much that you wouldn't learn in a textbook. You know, it, it really was uh, just kind of a master class in watching how you shape a show. And then the problems that come up and how you deal with the problems mm-hmm. and all of that, yeah. It's like a glass. When you're directing and choreographing today, in which ways do you feel you emulate him? Well, I, I, the one thing is, you, you know, your, uh, your opening. You know, how do you, how do you have an opening? The overall arc of a show. How do you make sure that uh, everything is placed appropriately, particularly when you have a, what we call a dance-driven show or a show that's driven by big production numbers? How yeah. do you make sure you're not repeating yourself? Mm. How do you not shoot the wad to such a degree that you have no room to keep growing? Mm. Those are things that I obviously learned through osmosis by watching this huge show being put together and how it fits. And, and I think about that every time I do a show or when I read a new script. It's like, what are the numbers? What needs to be danced? How do you make it all fit into the puzzle right. so that you do have a variety? I always say each number has to have an arc, mm-hmm. you know, beginning, middle, and end. And then the overall show has to have an arc. And it, it's challenging when you have a lot of numbers. Yeah. You know, shows that are not so dance-driven, it, it's a little bit different. Right. That might be more lyric-driven yes. or more book-driven Some by the, work, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the songs. But when you do have a lot of dancing and production numbers, it's, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge is, is how that all fits into the puzzle. What were some of the, the, oh, wait, the challenges uh, with 42nd Street while you guys were putting because it? Because now it, we know it, it was this big hit. We know that sure. it, the revival, big hit. Yeah. But did, did, was it that way the whole time? No, no. Out of Town was I mean, bumpy. Out of yeah. Town was bumpy. And, uh, you know, they you keep trying to fine-tune the numbers themselves that you know work. But then there's always discussion about uh, particularly do we need... There was a point where we thought Peggy Sawyer needed another number mm-hmm. uh, because the original, the 1980, it goes from uh, scene to Annie and Bert doing Shuffle Off to Buffalo mm-hmm. and then it went to the big 42nd Street number. So those characters each got one number. Mm-hmm. So we discussed it and we tried to come couple numbers and it just it just didn't pan out and so uh, even when we came back to New York we kept working on it but it ended up that it didn't happen the revival had happened we did put another number in for Peggy that precedes Buffalo and so that was one example of something that was tried out of town that just didn't uh, happen but then that always stuck with Mark Bramble the writer uh, co-writer and 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 Mark and I when we were doing the revival together we talked about going back to that idea that we never could really fix Realize, and yeah. do we give Peggy another number and what should it be? What should the song be? And, and you sit down and you discuss this and then I have to think again, okay, what side can we show of her that hasn't been shown in this musical already right. and, and, and how does that happen? So we arrived at that and that's actually a lot of people's, one of their favorite moments. It's uh, Plenty of Money in You is the song oh. and it's, it's Peggy and the 12 guys and she dances on top of the pianos. It's, it's very much a tribute to Ann Miller and Eleanor Powell mm. because of the skill level of the technique 
technique in that number. Okay. It's it's one of the numbers where she gets to do a lot of rhythm tapping and mm. close footwork that mm. Eleanor and Anne were so famous for. Yeah. And then she does a lot of turning in the number. Ah, so good old uh, Anne Miller. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that's another thing. If you're if you're really doing a lot of turning in a show, uh, I mean, that's one of the basic seven moves of ballet is turn A to turn. Mm-hmm. And and so I and turning is fabulous in a show. Oh, it's you, a, that brings yeah. audience to their feet when someone does yeah. that. Yeah, and you've got the thrilling. clothes moving. I mean, Fred, he uh, he designed clothes. Uh, he wore loose ties so that it would move the movement mm. of the. And, and of course, Ginger. A lot mm. of her dresses were designed oh, yeah. totally a for skirts the dance that world. would always like yeah. flare mm. out. And, yeah, and if yeah. you want to look at a master uh, who knows how to work a costume, you watch Ginger Rogers and how yeah. she worked the dresses. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and that was part of the choreography. Oh yeah, you know. And Miller, I always think of doing that too. I always think mm. of she, yeah. you know, throw the skirt. I mean, they all yeah, did. Yeah. They all, they all, yeah. they all right. knew how to do it. But it's just uh, the movement of the clothes also adds to the to the dancing. So, uh, so that was just one example yeah. of of trying to overcome a problem right. out of town and and how it all works. And of course, you always have to deal with uh, the humor and the jokes yeah. and listen to your audiences and what needs to be changed. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Working with David Merrick or working for mm-hmm. David Merrick, we've heard so many stories. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to contribute to that David Merrick experience? Well, again, another, uh, another kind of uh, lesson that you couldn't learn in a book by being uh, around uh, yeah. a producer like that and observing and watching. Mm-hmm. It, it's all about observing, you know, when right. you have the opportunity opportunities to work with people to uh, just learn by watching and I'm an observer so it's you're a sponge yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's easy for me to sit back and just watch and just kind of take it all in so I, I enjoyed it I enjoyed the process he was not an easy man as everybody would tell you but there was definitely a, a, a mutual respect between him and, and me and and he I think looked at me as a young guy knowing, well, he's not only a good dancer and, and loves the business, but he's got, you know, some smarts going on yeah. and intelligence. And uh, so it was a nice relationship. It was a, a really good relationship. I felt very lucky to have that. Um, let, let me take you back to one of the most infamous opening nights in mm-hmm. history um, in which the announcement of Mr. Champion's death is made after the show. So what did you know that he had passed prior to the announcement? Yes, there were a handful of us that knew that were called in the afternoon, but everything else it was kept from everybody else. Yeah, and famously. So, uh, so yes, I did know. And again, when you look back, it, it wasn't too surprising to us that we're close to him because towards the end of the previews here in New York, 
and when we also came back and went into rehearsals, he was out a lot. You know, he would disappear because of the illness and, and have to go in for whatever he was doing. And, and so, you know, maybe the cast didn't put the puzzle together just because they're so ensconced in their own tracks and their own shows and the excitement right. of, of getting ready for an opening night. But anybody who, again, was observing and in the room and watching or really, now, where's Gower? He's not here today or not here for two days. Uh, you, you, you knew something was going on, that, that it was becoming more serious. Yeah, so yeah, uh, we, we knew ahead of time uh, a group of us. Yeah. Then it seems like the, the torch of 42nd Street is now yours to be maintained. Is that correct? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, the, the revival has never been licensed uh, unless somebody like myself is involved with it or Mark Bramble. Then we do the revival version. The revival version is very different than the 1980 because we added all those new songs. Mm-hmm. We even actually have a new song in London production this oh? year. Oh. Yeah, we added another song for Dorothy because when, when Mark and I were talking about doing it in London... And we knew that Sheena Easton was going to be doing Dorothy. Now, that's another name people might not know because she was a rock pop star right. of a certain era. Yeah. And again, those are those are the kind of by the decade. People, if yeah. you were brought up in that yes. decade and you listen to that oh, music, yeah. then you know these people. I knew immediately, yeah. Yeah, of course. So we, we've always thought that um, when you think of the character of Dorothy Brock, she's always interrupted or she's sharing something on stage. She never really has a moment to herself, just the way the show was written originally, where she plants her feet, sings a song, and gets the applause. Mm-hmm. So we decided to try a number uh, of a show within a show number where she would get to be on stage just singing a great Warren and Dubin song. Mm. So uh, we picked Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and she sings it by a lamppost, which if you know your movies, it's kind of a nice homage to Joan Blondell in My Forgotten Man. And uh, and Sheena did it brilliantly because she's still got such a great voice. And and it actually was um, a nice moment because Mm. you, you do get to see Dorothy had that star moment, which is what you've been talking about which all night, up till then, yes. and then Dorothy Brock, the star, right. the diva. And, and so, uh, so shows continue to evolve, which is what's fun about it. But yeah, the 2001 version, um, if I'm involved or Mark, then we, we do that version. Anybody else who licenses the show is handed the 1980 package. Mm. Okay. And so they don't have the extra numbers or the, the there, new dance music or anything. Why that, um, is there it just never happened, I guess. I don't know. They were talking about it's it. so odd. But um, it's just, it's, it, the catalog is the 1980 and then now I've had friends who put the show up uh, in smaller versions and they'll call me then I'll call Tams Whitmark Sarge Aborn over at Tams and I'll say this is a very capable person they're doing it they'd like to have some of the extra music and then they they give it to them oh wonderful okay well that's good to know because it's all cataloged it's just not uh, in the it's just not in the the catalog to actually rent Mm -hmm. Um, this show will be performed way after we have all left this earth so what advice do you have for people that are going to be helming a production of this show either directorially or choreographically well, it's just, it's a lot of music and a lot yeah. of dance music. So you just have to uh, sit down with it. And I've, there's a lot of video on the show. So people obviously can do research and, and get ideas of how we felt it. But I think that's the same with any show that has those huge, huge dance numbers. It's, it, the task is how do you come up with the, the choreography? Uh, now, some people might edit it to some sure. degree or, or make some cuts. But yeah, I think about uh, White Christmas too, it's the same way. It's a, mm-hmm. There are huge dance numbers in that show. So I always 
always think about it. If somebody is going to basically try to sit down and do truly their own thing and not do anything that was done on stage prior, uh, it's just a lot of work to, mm. to come up with that. Many dance steps. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of the projects you've worked on are, could be described as period pieces. Mm-hmm. How do you get individuals all into that same world who have never lived in the 1920s or 40s? Well, you look, you look at it for the audition, number one, through the combinations you give. Mm-hmm. Uh, you certainly can give references and, and tell them what to watch and, and movies, things like that sure. of the period. And you can set up YouTube channels all the time. But it also comes from having great people in the front doing it. And uh, I still dance. Uh, so I'm dancing every day, pretty much. And, and so I'm on my feet when I choreograph, still creating the steps and actually dancing it. And then I have uh, wonderful assistants and associates that uh, also are wonderful dancers. And that that's the best scenario is if you, if you have the people in the front of the room, not just theorizing about it, but actually doing it the way you hope everybody else can match, then you have somebody to watch and emulate. And that's really how you learn. Right. Yeah. You learn by watching uh, great people dance, like I did watching the movies. Yeah. You just, you watch it and you emulate it, then you make it your own and you put your own touches on it, but you start by having those role models like mm. we talked about earlier. Right. So that's basically what we do in a show. My, you look, I look for an assistant that can basically dance like me, and that's, I think, what Gower was looking right, for. Yeah, right. When yeah. I went in and danced for him that whole day, yeah. obviously he was watching me to go, now, does this guy move like me? Does he look like me? And, uh, and as I said, we were built exactly alike. It was just even how we wore. Mm. You know, most dancers come in and they wear dance clothes. I always wore khakis. And, oh, and like, uh, you know, sweatshirts and things yeah. like that. So I, I did that casual look as opposed to always wearing just what we'd call jazz pants or dance yes. pants. And that's what Gower wore. Huh. So I didn't know it at the time. Right, it was just coincidence. But when but I walked in, I thought, geez, you know, yeah. we kind of dress alike and everything. So it, it just was an affinity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is American Dance Machine? American Dance Machine was started by Lee Theodore, who was the original Anybody's oh, yeah. in West Side Story. And uh, I don't know how the idea happened, but she uh, and a big audition went out for this thing called the American Dance Machine and one of the most brutal auditions I've ever been through in my life. (laughs) And she wanted to have a company that could recreate and have a living legacy of these great Broadway numbers from the great masters. So we went through an audition and she chose a company, I believe of around 14 at the time, and it was going to premiere at Ford's Theater down in Washington, D.C., so, uh, and I learned something from her. She, uh, the, first, uh, the first part of the audition we all had to go to, uh, go through was do eight assemblées forward. That's a ballet move. And you just had to start at the back of the room and do, you know, assemblée, 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 eight times to the front. And she felt that was enough to show uh, what you could do for the first cut. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, there is some truth to that. Yes. I mean, the, the, the chorus line audition was step forward. Uh, traditionally, I, I suppose it might still be done. Um, you would step forward, say your name, and do second, fourth, double pirouette, and land in a fourth position. That Amazing. was the first cuts. So, uh, so those, that, that's a lesson I talked to. I said, you don't have to have a long combination to show you a certain level of technique. Basics. If you yeah. know exactly what you're looking for and how the body works. Mm. And so then from there, of course, we had to pr- proceed on and do all sorts of different styles because she was going to be recreating and people with her all these different numbers, which involved different techniques and different styles, different periods. Yeah. And it was a wonderful period of my life. I, I loved it, uh, learning all that stuff and having a, a, a group, being surrounded by a group of 14 people oh. of oh. that level. 
because we, we were all we 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 were good dancers. You and know, you I were, say that modesty. Oh no, but the I mean, fourteen but, of us were really good dancers. So, and we're talking like what kind of? Give us like, some examples of some of the numbers that you did, then, or, or choreographers that you captured. Yeah, well, I'll have to think back. I, I know we did um, "Walking Happy" Danny Daniels. Oh my god, uh, the clog dance. We did a, a section from George M. Oh, Joe Layton. Joe Layton. Yeah. Uh, and I played George M. in that because uh, I was one of the tappers of the company. We did uh, Quadrille from Can Can. So that was a whole nother style. Mm. And then we did, uh, oh my gosh, this is so long ago. I love it. Yeah. I know they did the funeral dance from Brigadoon. That was part of the show. Uh, my memory's failing. It's okay, that's point. good. But those those are four. I remember like... I remember the quadrille because on one of the first uh, performances, I did the knee slide, and my knee pad fell off, and I cut my knee open, and I, like, and then I had to go on every single night yeah. after that. So you know, the knee the knee never healed till after the show, oh. <laughs> because you were constantly uh, taping it up. But you had to do the show, right? You yeah. know, must come on. You had yeah. to do the show. So, uh, but yeah, that that's a very vivid memory. Oh darn, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bust the knee open the first night. <laughs> How did you go from worshiping Ginger Rogers to meeting Ginger Rogers to working for Ginger Rogers? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, Ginger and I happened at that point in life to be handled by the same management firm. So this idea came up about reviving Babes in Arms, uh-huh. and uh, and there were definitely a couple parts I could have played in that. And that's how the package all came about. It kind of came through the managing office that, well, let's put everybody together and let's see if we can find a theater to do this. And that's where I first met Karen Ziemba because oh, we yeah. played we opposite each other. Interviewed her. <laughs> yeah, we played opposite each other and and uh, and it was decided that Ginger would direct and and so it was a uh, we worked on the show in different incarnations in different theaters for a period of a couple years so I became very close to her and and we had a great time and again learned a lot that you would never learn in a book right but I, that's an expression you know you can't learn this in a book no this is a passed down art form passed down I mean, art this form. is this is something you must have a mentor you must have someone hand it down to you in a way you can yeah. learn everything in a school but mm, yeah. you've got to have it no and that that's kind of a lost uh, theory right now. Um, I think I have a couple theories about it. Uh, when you are handpicked by somebody, there is a little bit of a pressure, you know, yes. that you feel you have to rise to the occasion. Right. And uh, and I'm not sure people always welcome that today because of uh, like, you know, who me, you know, can I do this? There's a fear maybe that, that sets in as opposed to just not thinking about that and censoring yourself and going, I'm going to go with the flow. Mm. And somebody sees something in me, so don't question it. Don't doubt yourself. Just go for it and let it all unfold. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know what prevents somebody from maybe being a little frightened of that kind of thing. But yeah. boy, having having a mentor is a, a huge plus in your life. I equate it to the sports world too when you watch yep. like the US Open in tennis yep. and they pan to the stands and you see not only the family supporting them you'll see a coach you'll see a psychologist they all introduce them yes. you see this whole bevy of people working towards the same goal for this athlete and yeah. you know show business is not all that different than the sports world it's equally as competitive and it, there's a equally as physical I'm sorry physical? but dancers are, yeah. uh, you know there's That's a reason right. why we have dancers over 40 I mean like it's, yeah. it's a, the, yeah. that's where athletes don't go past 40 right. I mean they're I think they're so similar as far as physical stamina and all of oh, that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just absolutely. insane what yeah. you dancers do. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a good connection to bring. And that's how that all happened with Ginger. And then we just kind of uh, worked together. And, again, we had an affinity. She she picked up – she knew exactly who my influences were the minute she met me and saw me dancing. And she even had – she had a quote that she gave to an interview in Variety. I have that clipped in my scrapbooks that – 
she just basically said, wow, when you watch Randy dance, it's like, it's like me watching myself and Fred. <gasps> so she saw it. She saw oh. that I was influenced totally by them. And, uh, and again, it's not a credit to me per se. It's the fact that they were out there and I chose them and they, I latched onto them and then studied them and then it became a part of me. Yeah. And it was obvious to her that, and she liked that, of course. She yeah. loved the fact that I, that I loved Fred and Ginger. So she she was very happy that uh, she was the un- unknown influence in my life as a young mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, absolutely. But that holds a special place in your heart, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, no, she, it, uh, I feel incredibly uh, lucky and blessed to have worked with a lot of those movie people. And every one of them to a T, including Gower and, and Marge Champion and, and, uh, and Anne and Ginger, all of these names um, that I met either through my own work or through Kenley Players as a dancer, they all basically took me aside and said, we see that you love what we do. Mm. We see that you love the movies. Pass this on. You know, teach, yes. take our legacy and make sure you keep it out there and that you pass on the history. And and that's basically what uh, you have to do. I mean, all composers are doing that now. The, the estates of composers are trying to get the music out more. Mm. You'll hear famous songs being yes. commercials. Yep. There's an Irving Berlin song now yep. on a commercial. No. And I go, yeah, they're trying to I make this music aware to younger people and younger generations and keep it out there. Wow. Which you is know. important to do. Very important. It is oh, important. I think so. Too. We're gonna keep, that's why we started this podcast. What's Ain't Broadway Grand? <laughs> well, that was Mitch Lee, composer of Man of La Mancha. Uh, interesting experience. Yeah, Mitch, Mitch was an interesting guy. You know, again, kind of a very strong, forceful personality. And uh, yeah, I got, I got hired uh, to do that show. I didn't know too much about it at the time. It had gone through different incarnations mm-hmm. and they were changing the team. And Were you choreo- I were choreographed you, were, it. Are you right. And were yeah. you doing choreography leading up to, other than 42nd Street, you know, this is 12, 13 years yeah, later. Yeah, I had done some local, regional productions. Again, okay. just as, thing, as things crossed my path, if it was something I thought was interesting, I would do it. Again, not wanting to wear that hat full time. I did didn't have that maniacal drive or feel right. like I had to say yes to everything. Whereas if you want to direct and choreograph, oh, yeah. you got to get out there and do it, whatever yeah. opportunities come your way. Yeah, so, despite that, you still got to hire yeah, to choreograph. Yeah, and I don't even, you show. know, I don't even remember how that introduction happened. Mm-hmm. But I remember going into the office, Mitch Lee's office, and sitting there, and, and again, the cigar, and the old timer, old school. the old school, oh. sitting across a big desk that separated yeah. you, yeah. and the cigar, and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and I just kind of left, <laughs> thinking like, well, you know, if this happens, this could be interesting. At the exact same time, I, I had a conflict about this. I had, prior to that, uh, I had done a couple shows out at Long Beach Civic Light Opera, oh, yeah. which was one of those big civic light uh, organizations. Yeah. There was a handful of them all up and down the West Coast. Yeah. And they did big star-driven shows. So I had been hired by David Steinberg, the television director and comedian. He was known for... Do you know that name? I mean, yeah. He, it was yeah. Called, yeah. he was first known as a, as a, as a comedian, uh, always on television, and hosted The Tonight Show many times, stubbed for Johnny Carson. And he uh, then went on and became a very renowned television director. Uh, of situation comedies and he was doing Pal Joey with Dixie Carter and Elaine Stritch and again Dixie Carter and I were with the same manager at the time so uh, they suggested that maybe I could choreograph and uh, do Pal Joey out on the west coast so I did that and um, 
and so then David Steinberg again kind of picked up on me because I was I was playing a part in the show plus also choreographing it. Nice. And Elaine was playing that the part of Melba, the reporter that right. she had done one that she had done it like yeah. 1951 or right, something like right. that. Zip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so David said, you know, you should come out to L.A. and trail me. I think he was doing either Designing Women or Evening Shade at mm. the time uh, on the series, and uh, and that's how you really get into television directing is you you go out there and you get under the wing of somebody mm. and you trail them and you learn the three camera blocking and all of this and so I had set that all up I had set that up to go out and, and stay with a friend for six months and rent a car and just be on the do that the lifestyle set and yeah. do that lifestyle and I'd been to California but I'd never planted my feet and lived there for longer than two or three weeks yeah. so I said this will be an interesting experience but at the same time then I got offered Ain't Broadway Grand and I said gosh original show not a revival original score all of this on Broadway and so um, I took it and called Dave and said I'll come out later and of course I never went out wow. but obviously my heart was in that. Yeah. Right. Yes. You yeah. know, and that's again yeah. when you have things, uh, people who are maniacal about getting into television mm-hmm. and movies and doing that West Coast, they would have taken that opportunity and turned down the New York thing. Right. I obviously uh, was more geared to being here and doing yeah. that. So that's how that all happened. And, and uh, that was an interesting time <laughs> and show yeah. because uh, kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah. I think a lot of people who know Mitch might have said that you know he got in his own way of a success oh. by decisions mm. he made or being resistant to things or maybe um, was, not seeing what should be done and waiting too long to do it. Was he the the producer as well as the composer? You know, I think he was. I'm not <laughs> I mean, so I'd have to look at the playbill to see whether right. his actual name but was, was on it. He was more than just He was more than just the composer sitting in the back of the room Absolutely. while they sang his songs. I mean, let's yeah. be real. That's the thing. I, if you went back and if his name was on it or maybe his production company was right. but no, no, he was calling the shots. Was, he was in charge. He was bit. calling okay, the shots. Cool. But you got a Tony nomination. Yes, I did. Oh my gosh. Yes, and uh that was exciting the yeah. first time and and uh and that was just yeah, that was That's a pretty... thrilling part of your life when that happens and you uh are a part of all that whole thing that goes on. Whole yeah, world, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, how did you get involved with encores? Just got a call one night, and I believe uh, I think it was from Kathleen Marshall, oh. if I remember. Again, so much happens, you get a little yeah. fuzzy sometimes. But she was in charge at one yes. point for that oh, one yeah. year. She, or, yeah, we, we I think it was maybe more that. than was yeah. it more than one year? Or? I know she was always involved, three years, but three years, I think. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Was... I believe it was Kathleen that called. Um, they had tried to pair me up on another show that didn't work out, and then. Uh, and I, I, I do think it was Kathleen who called. It was Do Re Mi. And um, gosh, I don't even remember who was directing it. Was it John Rando? Probably. Might have been, might have been John because we've been paired a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I just ran into John and, I like uh, oh man, I adore that guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, and it was uh, Paul Gemignani conducting. It was, uh, he was like guest conducting that yeah. particular show, so that was interesting to be with uh, to be with Paul yeah. and meet him. And uh, so yeah, Nathan Lane and Randy Graff played the leads, and uh, Heather Headley and Brian Stokes Mitchell. Those were the four the four leads. So That's a cast. Yeah. Great cast. And uh, that was my first encore show. So you kind of get into the family. Yeah. And if it goes up easily, because as you all know, encore is like 10 days. That's it. So, Summer stock. <laughs> uh, so you're not only judged uh, behind the scenes by the work that you do, but also did this go up pretty in an organized way? Oh, did everybody hit the stage after those 10 days and feel secure? Because, you know, it's not only about the talent that you bring to a room, but it's uh, particularly on a short rehearsal period. It's how, how do you mount these? Yeah. Yes. 
and that that takes another set of, of uh, yeah. skills to be able to organize and to be able to get yeah. the show physically up. So I would assume uh, that they watch that closely. To you're not maybe going to welcome somebody back if it was not an easy process. Yeah. Oh, no to way to get up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's too short. You just the labor don't have, of love. Really, I you mean, don't have a lot of time. Yeah. What do you look for out of a dance arranger, or what is the relationship with a dance arranger like for you? Yeah, with me, it's. Um, Again, I hear everything in my head. I think maybe that comes from being a tapper and hearing rhythm. So uh, I can take a piece of music. Now, if it's an original piece of music, that's a different situation. <clears throat> but with uh, something that's maybe pre-existing that has that's out there on recordings, you can li- like with encores. You when you're handed an encore show, uh, you usually well now some a couple of them I've done they've had to be reconstructed, like mm. face the music. Yeah. They had to go back and dig dig in the vaults but uh, usually there is something on the show and then they get into a room at some point and they record the music and then you have the score and then you can sit down with the score and and the actual audio tape of the orchestra playing it and then you can go through and make all sorts of notes but with the dance arranger on a new piece you get in a room and I hear things and then uh, uh, they'll noodle and you, I might say take uh, take the chorus and they'll veer off the chorus or let's take the verse of the song and what can you give me from the verse mm-hmm. and you just kind of keep going back and forth and they, they play and they inspire you inspire them right. but it helps, I think, when somebody hears things, and I do hear, I do hear it in my head as far as where a key change might need to be, or where I might want to do stop time mm-hmm. and do just chords. Mm-hmm. It's it's just li- it's living with the music, yeah. and then if you have a great pianist, they they bring that into the room also. Right. Do you like a lot of pre-production time? No, I don't. I don't. I tend to. Uh, do it intensely, or I might take a long stretch, but then do it periodically. Mm, mm. <laughs> Somebody else might do quite the opposite. They might right. take two or three weeks, and that just they devote that time right, right to the pre-production. Uh, I, I tend to, uh, if you have a, a big advance notice, I tend to just let it filter. If I'm in the mood, mm-hmm. I'll get it. That's the advantage of doing it if, if you don't need people around you, or you can make your notes yourself, or you don't want to video something. Right. It depends on your method, but... Uh, when you're just kind of doing it yourself, you can pick and choose when you might want to get on your feet or when you might want to bring the book out or bring the tape out yeah. and uh, hope that inspiration happens. Or you might get a moment mm-hmm. and then you just kind of go to work. I, I suppose everybody's different. I'm sure, sure you've heard all sorts of different stories or is it similar? Which is yeah. which is great. No, it's a variety, variety for us, yeah. which is what we yes. like. Um, what to you is the ideal director-choreographer relationship or the ideal director-choreographer collaboration? Well, again, it depends on the show. If you're dealing with a show that is not so dance-heavy, you really are pretty much together. I don't have a lot of those shows. I've done maybe a couple in my life where it truly is book-heavy mm-hmm. and the numbers are not dance per se, but staging. And then right. you, you really do have to work from a point of view of the book yeah. and, and, and telling the story because on those kind of shows... Everything is supporting the story. You know, yeah. those kind of pieces of theater don't really have what we call show within show numbers <laughs> yes. and mm-hmm. performance numbers and presentational numbers. When you're dealing with a big dance driven show, uh, and then you've worked with the director before, like I have with John Rando or Walter Bobby mm-hmm. or Mark, of course, Bramble, 
you're really in your own room, what we call the dance room. Yeah. And there might be some discussions up front about what you're doing, but you're you're just kind of left alone to put up these numbers. And then I always call it the happy room because <laughs> everybody wanders in and drifts into the room. Uh, eventually, they find the dance room because yes. people love being with dancers. Number one, and uh, and it's just it's joyful. The room is joyful. And then once you get the show up, and, and that's same with encores. Encores, particularly because it's such a short rehearsal period. Boy, you separate yeah. after the read through, and you are upstairs doing the dance numbers, and the conductor is doing the ensemble singers, and the director is doing the book scenes downstairs. So then you bring it all together, and that's when you have to definitely listen to each other, what has to be changed, what works, what doesn't work. And I don't know what it's like, because when you get to a point where you really uh, <coughs> kind of know what you're doing, and maybe it's a show that you have, uh, the same similar show that you've done, you, uh, you're you kind of left alone mm-hmm. to a certain degree to put up the numbers if you're working as a team. Yeah. It's afterwards that when people start watching it, and of course the producers might have ideas, and you have a lot of people that have input now. Now, I will say my career is unique in that I have not experienced what a lot of my colleagues have told me about, where you do have 30 names above the title and you have 30 opinions. Uh, um, in fact, Susan Schulman, your colleague at, at the college, told me something really interesting. Um, and she may have already relayed this to you. She said, when you find yourself in that situation, you have one person from the producing team be yeah. the spokesperson. Yes. I will always remember Susan telling me that because I said, how do you deal yeah. with this bombardment? 30 people, yeah, like emails and well, yeah. And she said, you have one person gather all the information and they bring it to you. And Brilliant. I said, that's incredible Brilliant. advice. Brilliant. That was an interesting thing to learn. Yeah. You're always learning. You know, you're always from, learning. You're always learning from people if you really listen and absorb. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's tricky today because most shows do have a lot of opinions above the title, and right. those have to be addressed. So uh, I have been. Uh, I've not well, really gone through. You that were yet. the last of. You know, we talked a little bit before we recorded how mm-hmm. you're you're of, in this generation. There, you don't because of the '80s and the crisis. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of. You you were saying you're like the only one of your of your generation at this exact age. Yes, yeah, I, like I said earlier with you when we were talking yeah. off mic, we uh, there's certainly people above me still, right? And uh, and there's people five six years, often more too. But there yeah. there are people in the vicinity. But when I, when I look at just me yeah. and who I came to New York with and who I danced with, and who is exactly at this point in life with me, there there's just not too many. Around, so it's, it's, it's an interesting feeling. Is there a dream project that you'd love to see get off the ground, or a show that you'd love to put your stamp on at some point? Yeah, no, I never really think in those terms. Yeah. you know, I uh, I watch how everything keeps changing, and so I think a lot about that. Uh, particularly this year, I saw every single show, mm. so it's um, you can you can see trends. That, that happen in theater. You can definitely see uh, how it's getting tougher to get tourists in because that's who supports your shows. You know, right, yeah. your, your New York crowd and your theater lovers are very small as far as your industry people. Right. Mm-hmm. But the people that make and create a hit are, are getting it out mm-hmm. to all the tourists and all the outsiders that come mm-hmm. in and, and the nearby areas. So you can see how people want to see bang for their buck yep. and how they these prices of tickets... So, uh, you know, off-Broadway has changed. Every, mm-hmm. Everything has changed uh, as far as trying to get people to spend their entertainment dollar on a, on a live show. What are some of the trends that you're currently seeing in uh, the Broadway choreography of today? 
Well, uh, just the shows in general, yeah. not necessarily all the choreography, sure. but what I observe, and every once in a while something different will break sure. through, of course, but there is a tendency of fast mm. and uh, all the digital age mm-hmm. where you see so much of the uh, scenic element being combined with digital images, which are incredible. You know, I don't, right. I, that technology is not so much in my brain, but you see the vividness of the colors and the brightness and how fast it all moves and changes. And there's a fastness to everything. But then, like I said, this season, you have a band's visit, which unfolds incredibly yeah. slowly yeah. at its own pace. Yes. So I'd like to think that there's room for everything yes, and yes. time will tell yeah. of, of what survives and what doesn't. Right. But I, I do see that happening where uh, the attention span of the audiences are not as, as, as tight as they were because of, of, of everything that comes at you right. mm-hmm. through social media and television. I'm, I'm quite surprised at how much is offered on t- television now with streaming and, and um, right. the, the uh, web series. Yep. You, you couldn't spend 10 lifetimes and see it all. No, and, it's and, and it's, it's and the quality is good. There is yes. a lot of good stuff out there, good yes. writing, good acting. And, and so you kind of think there's just so much vying for your attention. Mm-hmm. And so it's. I think it's just getting harder, and yeah. I think the New York theater scene is getting challenging in that way. To mm-hmm. there will always be hits, right. but there will always be a, a big percentage of things that don't make it and and can't make their money back, and yeah. then that affects it too because. Uh, you don't always necessarily get a road tour out of anything anymore, mm-hmm. or it doesn't necessarily go into the catalogs and get done a lot. Right. It just depends on the nature of the show and and how people view it. So. Uh, yeah, it's just different world. Yeah, I mean, any, world. I'm sure anybody who's talked to you yeah, previously yeah. of a certain generation <laughs> sees all the changes. It's evolving, yeah. Yeah, yeah it keeps constantly. changing. You are doing a lot of teaching, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that you've you're, there's a uh, you've given your papers to Ohio State University. Is yes, that right. Ohio State oh. has the Lawrence and Lee Theater Research mm-hmm. Institute, which is one of the biggest theater collections in the world. Uh, Lawrence and Lee went there, the playwrights, yes. mm-hmm. and so. Uh, Having been a graduate, they they approached me many years ago and said, would you like to keep your papers here? Number one, it's just so great to get it out of your apartment. (laughs) (laughs) You know. So true. When you don't have an attic or a basement or a a house uh, where you can house all of this stuff. Uh, it, it's been great. And it's all microfilmed and oh, it's organized. Really? And, oh, it, it's incredible. Wow. Ohio State is an amazing place. And yeah. they just recently redid the library where the collection is. And uh, I took a tour when I was home a year ago. And it's just, it's unbelievable what yeah. they did with the building and, and this part of the building. Yeah. So, yes, everything is there. I, everything that's in my career goes to Ohio State, and it will live forever. That's amazing. And I always incredible. tell that I when, yeah, awesome. when people write me opening night cards or something, I always say, I will take this, and I will read it, and I will have it with me for a while, but eventually you are going to live forever <laughs> at Ohio State wow. because they take everything. So it's they, everything, not even your notes on production. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's I mean, everything. It's, opening night telegrams, cards, uh, gifts. They, they want it all. And, and, the, and the public can ostensibly go and, yes. and do research on yes. that and see. Oh, yes, like, they have. And there have been several people who have done that, that oh, have yeah. gone and used it. And, wow. Uh, you know, um, posters there, show posters, just yeah. everything. Wow. Everything. Uh, anything that uh, that pertains to my life or career, That's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, goes, goes to Ohio State, which <laughs> is great. So yeah. I have I have to ask you, you you, you work so much. You're oh, one teaching. Of the, you were asking about yeah, teaching, Yeah, too. you're one of the most respected choreographers in the industry today. So why are you teaching? Okay, yeah. Teaching because, um, first thing, it keeps me in shape, Mm. which is why I do it, partially. Mm. Uh, I do it because I love to dance still, and uh, it forces me to uh, keep those skills honed. 
And I have to, I always say, you know, if you want to keep doing it, then you have to be ready, like we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. So that, that does it right there. Uh, it's a great way to scout for people, mm-hmm. particularly if you're looking for mm-hmm. all elements as far as what I call the MGM triple threat dancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be a triple threat in many ways today being a singer, actor, dancer, right. because of the nature of the shows. But I look for that triple threat dancer that can also tap do jazz, do ballroom and partnering at a certain level of skill. Not every show requires that, obviously. Or you might have primarily a jazz show or something like that, and you need a tap number, but the tapping is not going to be so extensive that it would eliminate people. Mm -hmm. So teaching uh, both tap classes and theater dance classes, it enables me to be able to truly see who's new to the city, pick up on something. Like I said, I can see instantly if somebody comes through the door and I see them have a love of movies. It shows yeah. in their work. So then I, uh, I, I'm i able to pull them aside and talk to them and let them know what's going on or let them know who to go study with if they have to fill in a gap somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a great way to stay in touch mm. with new people. You're that's ment- so wonderful. You're, you're mentoring constantly. Yeah. I think that's really, really and I still special. take class. So uh, oh, now yeah? The, uh, yeah? Oh, yeah, sure. The, uh, the tricky thing about it is when I... It's not so much when you're teaching, but you... Uh, when you're around dancers a lot in the real world, either by taking class or, or giving a class, you are rubbing elbows and shoulders with people who you might have eliminated yes. at yes. a call and know or you. who might overstep their limit and, and um, ask a question you might not want to answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to pinpoint it. But yeah, I mean, I've gotten used to it because I'm not going to stop teaching and I'm not going to stop uh, dancing myself at this point. So I just have to know that I could walk in and take a class mm-hmm. and be standing next to somebody that was eliminated yeah. two days before <laughs> at an audition and, and have a nice conversation with right. them. Yeah. Sure. You know, because, yeah, we're yeah. all in it together and I'm certainly always willing to answer anybody that might have something and or ask a question. I'm very open that way and, mm-hmm. and accessible. So, yeah, I, I, that's a teacher in me. As you all know, you, 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 but you both being teachers, one one. you it's just, really uh, that's a big part of your mission is to yeah. constantly not only pass on, but to be open to helping people clarify yeah. whatever might that's be right. on their mind. Yeah. yeah. Really well, I have to say thank you for passing on such incredible knowledge to us today. This and I know our listeners will really, really enjoy this. And, and thank you for all the beautiful work that you've given us over the years. Oh, thank you so you, much. Yeah. You always transport us to a magical place anytime we see one of your pieces. Yep. Well, I love it, and yeah. I think anybody who stays in the industry uh, will tell you that, that you do it because you love it, yeah. and it just brings such joy to the world. I and mean, you think about what would it be like if you right. didn't have the arts. The yeah. Joy is the word to use. That's yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we will end on a joyous note. I so thank you so much, Randy. And thank so you, guys. Thank you. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Good day, Mr. Thomas. Good day, Mr. Schneider. Well, it has happened. We finally hit over 100 iTunes reviews, and we would like to thank each and every person who took the time to do so. Huzzah! Now, (laughs) we want to climb those charts even faster, and that is where you lovely folks who have not yet rated us come in. The process is very simple. On your podcast app, tap the search tab, enter our name behind the curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, tap the search key, Tap our beautiful logo, tap the reviews, 
tap write a review then tap your way into our hearts <laughs> tap your troubles away. away that's nice Rob once you are there you can rate us from one star to five stars think of one star as Hervé V <laughs> Rob how do you say this name Hervé Villechev oh dear God, I walked right into that one <laughs> think of one star as Hervé Villechev and Ima Sumac in Sideshow and five stars as front row seats to the opening night of Gypsy <laughs> but they keep me yeah, they give me for the first time. I thought that was pretty good. We want to get good reviews, Rob. We want to get good reviews. Excuse me, Arthur Lawrence. <laughs> Excuse me for trying to liven up our commercial ads a little bit. Eight minute long commercial. I, it's an infomercial at you this point. <laughs> I'm going to be like that lady that sells you the copper pots. Look at this. You can put 400 pounds of manure in it, and it slides right out. Then you can make an omelet. You got another line, Kevin. You gotta, you gotta I'm waiting for you to say, plus you can leave your comment. Let oh, us know if you're liking what guests are like. Plus next. you can leave a comment. Let us know what you are liking, <laughs> what you're not liking at this point, uh. or what guests you'd like to hear next. So head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think of our little show. Speaking of little, I'll tell you a story about Charles Lawton later. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.